This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. This Saturday is Juneteenth, commemorating the end of slavery in the United States. On June 19, 1865, Union soldiers brought the order to Galveston, Texas, informing residents of that state that enslaved people were now free. And Juneteenth is now a step closer to becoming a national holiday after the House and Senate this week passed a bill establishing the day as a federal holiday and sending that bill to President Biden's desk to be signed into law. I spoke to State Representative Geraldine Thompson, who's also the founder of the Wells-Built Museum of African American History and Culture, about how emancipation came to Florida, teaching African American history, and why Juneteenth is gaining prominence now. Well, Representative Thompson, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. So let's talk a little bit about Juneteenth. Is it a celebration or is it more kind of a reflection on closing a grim chapter of the history of the United States? It's an absolute celebration, and you can imagine if people who had been enslaved for over 200 years found out that they were free. Uh, They were singing and dancing. There was oratory. There were sports uh, contests. So it's generally a celebration that includes some of the historical facts that led up to Juneteenth. And in order for people to really appreciate Juneteenth, they've got to understand that slavery began Uh, in this country, uh, 1619, and then you got 200 years until Abraham Lincoln signs the Emancipation Proclamation. But even then, people were not free, and America entered into a civil war to determine if one group of human beings could legally own another group of human beings. And so from 1861 to 1865, you had the Union Army, you had the Confederate Army uh, in battle to settle this particular question. And so in uh, 1865, even though the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed years earlier, freedom uh, had not come because no one wanted to give up their property, which was the way that they made their their livelihood. And so you had the Civil War. And so to include this historical information in any observance of Juneteenth is absolutely critical so that people know uh, why uh, there is a celebration. It it strikes me that the holiday, that Juneteenth and the significance of it, or I guess recognition of it, has only really gained sort of more widespread prominence in recent years. Would that be a fair assessment? Well, actually, uh, I organized a celebration of Juneteenth about um, more than 20 years ago, probably 25 years ago. But people didn't understand what it was all about. It was certainly uh, well known in Texas, but not in Florida. And so people are just now beginning to understand, more fully understand uh, what Juneteenth is all about and understanding that it's June 19th 1865 that has been contracted into Juneteenth. What was the reception like for your celebration of it 25 years ago? Like what kind of, uh, what, what kind of response did you get? Uh, not a great response because part of what needed to happen was education, educating people about what Juneteenth uh, was all about. Uh, it has grown, the reception has grown, and now you have many more organizations who are uh, celebrating Juneteenth, and they have their own observances and uh, different kind of events. Uh, So it has gained a a lot of popularity uh, very recently. 
Mm-hmm. Thinking about how it was recorded at the time, like what records do we have, like whether written or um, you know maybe stories that have been passed down, like like how was it how was it recorded by historians of the day? I'm I'm thinking that if we go to our history books, and certainly I would imagine that in the history books regarding uh, Texas, you're going to find some recount of of Juneteenth. Mm-hmm. We haven't done the best job here in Florida in telling our story. And I made a presentation to a group of educational leaders uh, very recently last month and uh, told them my reaction to the movie Harriet. And uh, I enjoyed the movie. However, I was disappointed that it did not include any information about Harriet Tubman's time in Florida. In addition to being the conductor of the Underground Railroad, she was a soldier and a spy, and the Union Army stationed her near Fernandina in uh, near Duval County in Jacksonville. And she was there on Juneteenth when freedom came. She was in Florida. So we haven't really told that story. It hasn't been incorporated in our curriculum and our lesson plans in our history book. Uh, history books, and that's an oversight that we've got to address. I also talked about the fact that Harriet Tubman uh, would do reconnaissance for the Union Army. She would go into plantations and then help the men escape to join the U.S. colored troops. And one of the colored troops that was critical here in Florida was the Carolina uh, Volunteers, from South Carolina and the Massachusetts 54th. And she would recruit uh, black former enslaved men to join the US colored troops. And one of the biggest civil war battles held in Florida occurred at Olusty in Baker County here in the state of Florida. And the Union Army came from Jacksonville to Olusty with the intent of disrupting the supply chain, the food, the clothing, etc., cetera, uh, there was a train depot in Olusty and they were going to just disarm the depot. And they had been told, the Union Army had been told that there were about um, 500 Confederate troops around Olusty. And when they got there, there were 5,000 Confederate troops. And the only thing that saved the Union Army from total annihilation were the U.S. colored troops, the South Carolina uh, Regiment and the Massachusetts 54th Regiment. If you saw the movie Glory, part of that was filmed at Olusty. And uh, Glory uh, starred um, Morgan Freeman and Denzel Washington and captured some of the area at Olusty where the U.S. colored troops came in, saved the Union soldiers from annihilation. Those who had been injured were put on the railroad cars. However, the locomotive had no power. And so those U.S. colored troops actually pulled the train to get the uh, Union soldiers back to where they could be treated. And Harriet Tubman was part of the group of people who treated them once they got back to Jacksonville. This isn't widely known, and it should be. It should be. And what I tell people all the time is that 
um, African-American history is American history. And you can't tell the complete story of America without including and incorporating African-American history. So I certainly would recommend that people Google Harriet Tubman in Jacksonville and the U.S. Colored Troops in the Battle of Olusti. If you're just joining me, my guest is State Representative Geraldine Thompson. We're talking about Juneteenth. Um, Representative, why do you think it is that um, it's taken a while for Juneteenth to to become kind of more widely recognized? I mean, sort of thinking back to 25 years ago when you, when you put on that celebration and sort of flash forward to now, why has it taken this long for people to pay more attention to it? Uh, I think just as uh, a lot of people have not truly observed African-American History Month in February, uh, we have not observed Juneteenth. And when, when I, I'm a former academician, and so when I talk about what we teach in our classrooms, this is not something that you can teach uh, just in February. It has got to be in the textbooks. Is Those are your questions. You know, where can we find the information? It has to be incorporated in the textbooks. It's got to be in um, our libraries. It's got to be part of the curriculum. It's got to be part of our lesson plans so that people understand what it is, what it's all about, and why they ought to celebrate. I see this as a continuum uh, starting May 20th and for an entire month to tell the story of emancipation and then to have the major celebration on um, on June 19th. Uh, just as we celebrate July 4th, which is also a milestone with regard to freedom. So these are various days that commemorate the journey uh, toward emancipation and freedom. What deeper conversations do you think need to be had surrounding Juneteenth and just about race in general and contemporary American society? Well, uh, I, I saw last week that State Board of Education uh, prohibited critical race theory mm -hmm. and uh, indicated that race is not something that should be taught in our schools. I don't know anyone who's teaching critical race theory to begin with, but you're banning something that does not exist. But we've had a law in the state of Florida that was put into statute in 1994. So for 27 years, we've had a law, Florida statute, that requires instruction in all 67 counties, all 67 school districts on the history of the Holocaust and African-American history. And you may remember uh, a couple of years ago, a parent asked a principal in Palm Beach County, how are you teaching the history of the Holocaust? And the principal uh, responded that we're not requiring it, we're not mandating it, because I'm not sure that the Holocaust occurred. So it wasn't being done. And so now there's more attention that's being given to it. The uh, Department of Education, the Commissioner of Education, has an African-American history task force. And the task force has gone to all 67 counties, and surveyed and looked at uh, what is being provided and determined that only 11 out of the 67 counties are really providing uh, instruction on African-American history across 180 days, which is the length of the school year, rather than uh, an abbreviated something that is confined to uh, February.
And so that those are the kinds of things that uh, we, we need to be doing. And to say that we can't discuss race and ethnicity uh, says that we're not going to present the authentic history uh, and civics education to our students, which is absolutely necessary. I see it as a way to motivate uh, students who will be inspired by these, story, uh, these stories if they knew of them. How much do you think the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests that we saw sweeping the nation in 2020, how much of that do you think would have driven people to, to pay closer attention to the history of this country and maybe think more deeply about Juneteenth and, and other events around emancipation? Well, uh, we saw last year that um, people began to understand what happened in Tulsa when President Trump proposed to go to Tulsa for a rally on Juneteenth. And people were saying, you know, this is an insult. This is disrespectful. And so he changed his plans and people began to understand what Juneteenth was all about. There have been several uh, documentaries uh, one on uh, NPR regarding Tulsa and what happened in Tulsa. So the, the kinds of things that have been swept under the rug and that have been obscured for a long time are now uh, surfacing. And we're going to have in the curriculum in Florida, things included like the Okoye uh, massacre that occurred in 1920 on election day. Mm -hmm. We're going to incorporate information about Rosewood, about what happened to Harry T. Moore and his wife Harriet in Mims, Florida. So th those kinds of things are beginning to come to the surface and to be included in our education. It strikes me that it's it's not just a one and done thing, right? You can't just say, okay, we've we've taught that people know about it. It's it's a constant process of pushing back against misinformation and and just trying to make sure that people aren't ignoring certain parts of the history of the country. Yes, uh, I, I say uh, like with youngsters, you can't use deodorant one day and say, you know, I used it. You got to do it every day. It has to be a continuous thing. And so the, yeah, the, uh, the focus on African-American history can't be something that you just do in February. It's got to be 180 days, the length of the school year, and it's got to be in the textbooks. We have we need to begin to review textbooks to see if, if the textbooks are presenting a uh, a thorough a thorough picture. Mm -hmm. And we're not talking about cancel culture, which is what some people think that this is about. It's not canceling any part of our culture or our history. It's broadening and enhancing uh, that history. Mm -hmm. So making Juneteenth an official holiday is treated differently across the nation. Some states like New York have made it a state holiday. Some companies, as you alluded to earlier, have recognized the day for their workers. Um, efforts to make it a national holiday are progressing. What do you think would be different if Juneteenth was officially recognized as a national holiday? Well, with national holidays, that means that um, federal offices are going to be closed. It has a greater impact on uh, businesses. And so Juneteenth Day has been a part of Florida's elective holidays, I think for, for, for at least 25 years, but making it a paid holiday 
moves it a step further because we're, we're talking about actually closing offices, having employees uh, off for the day, and there's a cost associated with that. I know that um, Senator Randolph Gracie introduced legislation this last session uh, in the Senate, and Representative uh, Travis McCurdy introduced the legislation in the House, and uh, <clears throat> it was not successful. What came out of it, however, was including Okoye, the Okoye massacre in the curriculum and some scholarships that will now be awarded to the descendants of Okoye. So it's it's a way of repairing uh, some of the damage that was done. Well, uh, Geraldine Thompson, state representative for Florida's 44th district. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Okay. And I'll see you at the Wellsville. Up next, how Second Harvest Food Bank doubled its output during the pandemic and why the need for food may not taper off so quickly, even though the economy is picking up. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Second Harvest of Central Florida CEO Dave Krepko says the pandemic had a profound impact on the way the food bank operates. For a start, the amount of food going out has nearly doubled. Krepko, who's stepping down from the job at the end of the year, reflects on the safety net for people hardest hit by the pandemic, and he talks about what's next for Second Harvest and the non-profit world. Well, Dave Krepko, thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Thank you. Let me ask you a big picture question. How has the pandemic affected what you do at Second Harvest. The pandemic has affected everything we do at Second Harvest, Um, you know, starting with just uh, an incredible increase in demand for emergency food. And, you know, the, you know, in a year, we'll distribute a lot of food, you know, pre-COVID, we distributed enough for about 60 million meals in Central Florida, we're talking about. And that's a lot. And we're on track uh, this past calendar year to distribute enough for 100 million meals. Uh, so, you know, that has major impact on our operations and our truck drivers and the amount of trucks we have, the number of volunteers. Um, you know, it's just uh, phenomenal. And to, uh, to try to find that additional food, you know, in the first place. So, and that, that puts a strain on, you know, every, every part of the organization, you know, it puts a strain on, you uh, you know, fundraising as well. You know, you can uh, you can have the greatest mission in the world, but if you don't have the financial resources, you know, uh, you're not going to go far. Uh, fortunately, we have seen during this pandemic uh, a real positive impact. And I'd uh, like to mention is that, you know, the Central Florida community is incredibly generous. Um, mm-hmm. and, and due to them, we've been able to respond at such a high level you know, the, the other things that have impacted us, um, j- just um, talking to so many more people who have had to ask for food support that we never had to before. We figure about 40% of, of the folks that we distributed food to in this past year never had to ask before. And that is a very different phenomenon. You know, I mean, as we know, people... Uh, People lost jobs through no fault of their own. You know, all of a sudden, you know, the, those jobs were gone. And then we're finding this this part of the population that pre-pandemic was kind of, you know, 
on the on the fence, you know, trying to do the balancing act, you know, economically in life. And when the pandemic hit, they just fell over the other side of the fence. So it, it increased, uh, it just increased the numbers substantially. Uh, so, and then we're dealing with things that a lot of other organizations or business are dealing with, you know, the whole, you know, part of the staff is remote, you know, part of the other staff is not remote. Uh, the partners and the collaborations that you had pre-COVID, uh, you are now trying to do that stuff virtual, you know, and it's impossible to keep up virtually. So it's, yeah, it's been a challenge. It's been a challenge for everyone. And thinking about where we are now, economically, we're kind of turning the corner a little bit, like jobs are coming back online. Uh, there's actually a bit of a hiring boom at the moment, right? Like um, companies are, in some cases, struggling to fill positions. Does that mean, as far as you're concerned, that that demand for the services that you provide is going to go down, or do you see this recession and the subsequent, you know, the attendant food need having a pretty long tail? Well, let's let's hope the demand goes down, and may the economy continue to, you know, improve, and may employment be more full for for everyone. We we believe there will be a long tail. Uh, after the recession, we saw a long tail and the impact of COVID, you know, from our organization point of view, was even greater from COVID. So we believe there's going to be a, a, a long, long tail. Um, you know, people are, during COVID, people blew through a lot of their savings if they had any, right? And uh even if they're able to get employed again, okay, uh, it's going to take a while for them to become whole again, right? And, and that can take that can take years, you know, depending on what what situation you're in or what kind of job you're able to find. Um, and the other thing is, you know, pre-COVID, we have to remember that we had a very tenuous situation for low low-income folks, that if you have a low-paying job, uh, you you have this unaffordable housing crisis. That has not gone away during COVID. And if anything, it's become worse. You know, we're, it looks like we're the cost of real estate now and rentals is, is uh, increasing substantially. And it, it seems like this bubble is growing bigger and bigger. So, so people might be getting back to work, but they're finding themselves, you know, without savings. Maybe they lost the car, you know, it was repossessed or whatever because they couldn't meet payments. But they've delayed medical medical care, and that health issues have caught up with them. So, uh, you know, if <laughs> with the economy getting better, it's not an automatic. Hey, everything's going to be there. It's going to be lower demand. The other interesting dynamic is that due to the generosity of the food industry and the community, we've been able to source and purchase much more food than usual during this pandemic, substantially. And it showed us what it gave us an idea of the, the real size of the demand in this market, you know, and after COVID does pass, we believe we're going to be looking at a, a a new normal, so to speak, in terms of 
the number of people in need. Uh, I, I know to a lot of folks on the outside, you know, that, you know, just how can that be? But it's for some of the reasons I mentioned, you know, folks are coming will be losing the additional unemployment benefits, right? And are you expecting an extra uh, bump in demand or a surge for, for um, you know, the food bank services provided by Second Harvest from that? We do. I can't, I can't quantify that at all, but um, it's not going to help, <laughs> okay? I, I wish it did. There's, there's this phenomenon. Charity can be uh, very complex at times. And, for example people that are losing those benefits um, still looking for work may not find the right job. You know, you got to have the round peg in the round hole, right? Or you got to have the right training. And that's a challenge. But in the meantime, you know, there are public benefits like SNAP, which are previously called food stamps. And um, there's this thing called the benefit cliff that exists. And as much as people want to get back to work, that the way that SNAP and some of these federally funded programs, social service programs are designed, is that if somebody were to get a 50 cent per hour increase in their hourly wage, right, that that would put them at a level where they would lose SNAP benefits or child care support. So for this marginal increase, you know, compensation, they face this corresponding dramatic decrease. And, you know, one of those things, and I mentioned it briefly, is just childcare is so expensive um, that the least expensive, in most of the counties in Florida, the least expensive daycare costs can be more costly than the least expensive rent, Hmm. you know, to put things in context. So it's kind of a a long answer to your question, but you know, that's a, you know, we, we believe there, there will be an increase. Uh, How long that, how big that exactly is going to be, we don't know. But uh, during this pandemic, we, we really found out, you know, a, a clear picture of what the true need is in this community. We, we as an organization, we're not meeting 100% of the needs, uh, food needs of the community to begin with, you know. So thinking about some of those other things that they're not directly connected to the services that you provide, but it's all part of this holistic picture, right? Like um, the need for food, the cost of childcare, you know, transportation, all of those things are part of this ecosystem. And, and to your point, people who are really treading a fine line, trying to make everything balance up beforehand, a tiny little change or a big change in the case of COVID and the pandemic is, is really going to tip some people over the edge. But, you know, when you think about childcare and the high cost of that, and then you hear people say, look, the simplest solution to get people back to work is to remove that extra benefit because that is just going to, you know, people are just kind of, sitting at home because it's easier for them to do that. What do you think when you hear something like that? Like, does that kind of tally with what you're hearing about uh, this dynamic between, you know, what it costs to, to, to live in central Florida or, or in the United States and, and what you can make in some of these jobs where the wages may not be so high? You know, it, I, I believe that uh, by cutting off these additional unemployment benefits, it's not going to solve the problem until it's too simplified. It's a it's a very broad brush kind of paint that whole population 
you know, the same. And when you start looking at the different types of individuals and the different types of jobs that, that exist, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't compute. We find that the hundreds of thousands of people that, that receive food through us, they want to work if they can, right? Uh, and let's remember that these people have, so many of them have families. So there's, there's kids in the families that um, are in circumstances beyond their control, right? They didn't choose what family or what zip code they were going to grow up in. And, um, you know, they, they can become and often become casualties of, of some of this policy that is set without really thinking it through. Um, you know, there were, um, well, there are seniors, there's just too many senior citizens that have had to work, you know, beyond that, whatever the retirement age was, right? In the 60s somewhere, 65 or whatever, 67. And they lost, I mean, they lost their jobs. Uh, you know, and I think in our, our country, there's uh, a lot of ageism going on. And uh, it's very subtle and it's below the radar, but a lot of those folks have an incredible uh, challenge of, of finding jobs again. Uh, and, you know, if they're cut off those additional unemployment benefits, they, they got real issues. Um, a lot of them don't, have, don't even have transportation. You know, someone who's hungry is just not hungry. They have all these, you know, are many of these other issues, you know, like we mentioned about healthcare and housing and transportation and childcare, all that. It's a, it's a, it's a bundle. I don't know if that answered your question there or not, but you know, when, when policy like that is formed, we just got to be really careful about, you know, that we don't throw everybody into the same category. And there's a, and, and behind that can be, and often is, incredible stereotypes that are held about the unemployed. And uh, I would challenge any lawmaker to spend a day with us and and sit down and talk with some of these folks and really hear what their situations are. Now, you're stepping away from Second Harvest at the end of this year. Was that a decision that you'd already made before the pandemic, or was this kind of a moment of reflection for you in the middle of that? <laughs> Yeah, COVID broke my back, right? <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's been it's been a time for people to kind of reconsider what they're doing. A, a lot of folks, right? Yeah, for sure. Actually, I, I I had come to terms with the decision prior to COVID hitting. I just didn't go, you know, public with it. But it's it's kind of like being on the Titanic and it's going down, and you're the captain, right? We weren't going down, but it, there's just no way you can walk away. But I was thinking longer term, it, it was kind of a coincidental thing. But, um, you know, in retrospect, now that I, that I look at it, it's like, well, I guess it's, it's a really good time for me to step step away and retire, you know, and, and at the end of the year. Um, and I and I feel really good about it because um, we, we have such a strong team here and strong board of directors and support of the community. We have a a wonderful future plan in place on, you know, continuing what we do plus, you know, plus some additional, you know, directions that, you know, we want to add. Uh, we have great momentum. And uh, 
I want to move from a human doing to a human being, you know, in my life. And I'm struck by what you said before about the, the growing need for the kind of service that Second Harvest and that other um, nonprofits like yours provide. Um, how do you feel about the world and, and, and sort of, you know, what you're handing over to the next generation of, of nonprofit leaders? Like, are we doing a good job collectively of, of, you know, filling that gap and feeding the need? Or do we, is this like a moment where we, we really need to be rethinking some of these big societal questions? Well, I, I, I am very hopeful actually, uh, despite a lot of negative stuff going on around us, you know, but I am hopeful from a nonprofit point of view. Uh, when I see, the younger, you know, the Gen Xers and the millennials coming in, I am just so impressed. They are so smart. You know, they're tech savvy. Uh, they have incredible passion and idealism. You know, all those qualities, you, you can't buy those qualities, you know. But I, I see that each and every day. And I see it across the United States with um, – 200 of my peers that are running food banks in different areas of the country uh, that this is happening. And I, I believe for central Florida and it was pre pandemic, it, it started to surface that it, I really sense that this community is really stepping up in collaboration uh, and a lot more people talking to each other. Uh, there's more conversation around the systemic approach or this more holistic look of, of the people that require help. And all of us, whether whatever social service we're providing, it's, it's basically dealing with the same population. So why should we work with them one off, so to speak? You know, how can we collaborate more? And that's part of our direction as an organization. How can we come alongside people that are in the uh, affordable housing space, um, education, health care, you know, job creation, uh, those kinds of things? How can we bring our assets to the table to, to complement what they're doing? and share information and work more. And I, I see seeds of that and uh, happening and more and more of that. So I, I'm really hopeful about that. It, and it just go back to, I, I really believe um, that people are working smarter because we're, we're learning a, along the way here, you know, through incredible experiences like, like COVID, you know, uh, disasters are something that will, really provide an opportunity to to reveal what you're really all about uh so yeah i i i'm hopeful you know um i think we're we're going to be heading in a good direction there's there's a lot to figure out yet let me tell you, you know? well dave kripko is the ceo of second harvest dave thanks so much for your time appreciate it you are so welcome Still to come, penguins with hernias, brain surgery for fur cells, and how do you tell if a sea urchin is sick? We're back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. 
The pandemic may have focused more attention on animals and how diseases can jump from species to species, but there's a lot veterinarians are still learning about the animals they care for. Dr. Jen Flower is the chief clinical veterinarian at Mystic Aquarium in Connecticut, and Dr. Trey Clark is the director of animal health and welfare at SeaWorld Abu Dhabi. I caught up with them at the veterinary meeting and expo in Orlando last week. I think with the world of human medicine, we learned a lot about the limits and, and possibilities of telehealth. Has that translated to veterinary medicine too, or is it a little bit more tricky to do a consult with an animal <laughs> remotely? Yeah, I think um, some of that has probably translated to animal health a bit. I think in the area of veterinary medicine that Trey and I are in, being aquatic and zoo animals, it's a little bit tough to do things remotely via a um, camera, so to speak. But certainly everyone gets a lot better with communication and utilizing technology for those types of things. So um, we had to get very creative um, and uh, just whatever was in the best interest of the animals. The animals don't stop, right? You know, we were still rescuing animals during the pandemic, still, uh, the animals are still there, right? And so we're getting them in, and unfortunately we can't talk to them, so we had to physically touch them, and, and we were going pretty strong throughout the entire process. Do you have a specialty? Like, is there one animal you kind of focused on in your studies, or do you have to be a bit of a, a pinch hitter for all species? So... Jen and I, we and, and uh, veterinarians like us, we do it all. So our days can consist of looking at sea urchins, then looking at penguins, and then all the way looking up to killer whales all in the same day, maybe in the same hour. Uh, so we do it all. My, I always like to, to joke around that real doctors treat more than one species. So, <laughs> you know, we, we have to know every type of body system. We have to know uh, every type of, uh, you know, we, they can't talk to us, so we have to know it all. Uh, how do you tell if a sea urchin is sick? It's <laughs> a very good question. Uh, very good question. Sometimes a little slower, but the, the keepers are actually that are they're kind of our version of the clients, and they're really in tune with these animals, and uh, they're able to tell if someone's off, someone's not acting right. Because remember, a lot of these animals in the wild, if they're sick, that means they're weak, and that means they're being able to be picked off. So it's kind of very hard to determine, but we can tell little nuances in their behavior and things like that. And keepers and, and veterinarians like us are very tuned to those, and so we kind of key in on those and, and are able to uh, to get them the help they need. One of the things that kind of piqued my interest about this conference and this interview was um, a, a line about a penguin with a hernia. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, so yeah, so we have a large, uh, I was working at SeaWorld San Diego, and we have a large population of uh, Antarctic, sub-Antarctic penguins, um, and they live very long lives, and so we've had an animal that was around 33 years in age, a male that uh, all of a sudden the keepers told me he's limping one day, and you know, it's kind of the end of the day, and so we went to go check on him, and it was enough that we wanted to bring them in and take some x-rays. And they get osteoarthritis just like we do, so they have aches and pains in their joints. And so we, we looked at them, and I kind of was like, you know, looking. He had a little extra junk in his trunk. And so I was like, this is, this is not normal. So, you know, we're doing our normal diagnostics, x-rays, palpation, ultrasound, and things like that. And we actually found out he had a hernia. So essentially, his half his intestinal tract, when I mean half, I meant half, half his intestinal tract is kind of hanging out of his belly, still inside. But uh, so we took him to emergency surgery, and we were able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And he's doing great right now. And uh, he's hopping around just like nothing happened. That's kind of a sporting injury usually, right? So how does a penguin get a hernia? <laughs> you know what? 
naturally, you have to think sometimes, these animals are athletes, right? These are athletes that are constantly swimming. They have huge musculature compared to our body size. You know, they're, they're extremely strong. And so it kind of is sometimes, you know. Uh, it can be a muscle uh, athletic injury. So, Dr. Flower, what's the a, uh, an injury, I guess, or an animal that's presented to you that's really, I don't know, stumped you or, or been something, you a puzzle you've had to solve and really had to work hard to solve? Yes, there has been a lot. Um, one case that I talked about here at BMX a couple days ago was uh, a northern fur seal that was actually a rescued animal. So she had stranded off the West Coast. She was deemed non-releasable due to some neurologic disease and some visual deficits. So she came to us at Mystic Aquarium. We were able to provide her with a forever home. The um, When things got a bit complicated was when she started having seizures, repeated seizures, and we had to figure out what was going on with her. So we, um, we paired up with some small animal specialists, so people that specialize in dogs and cats, and we did some imaging on her head, so CT and MRI, and determined that she was having um, some extra fluid buildup on her brain. And this case was a challenging one. We didn't really know where to go with it because um, brain surgery in marine mammals isn't something that's done ever. Actually, it's never been done before. So, uh, but in this animal's case, it was the only option to save her life. So we had to get very creative applying uh, techniques using humans and techniques using dogs and cats to this fur seal. And uh, that's exactly what we did. We took her to brain surgery and we put in a uh, specialized drain in her brain to drain that extra fluid. And, uh, and she lived a great quality of life. So uh, it's just an example of how we have to be really creative on the day-to-day and, and think on our feet. And you literally never know what's going to walk in uh, what's going to walk in the door when you're doing zoo and aquatic animals. How do you operate on a sea animal? Like you have to keep it cooler than you would a dog or a cat. So actually, um, uh, a lot of the same principles apply. People think you have to keep them colder, but you actually have to keep them just as warm as a dog or cat. They tend to lose a lot of body heat under anesthesia. Some of the tricky things we run into is their fur. So for instance, in the case of this fur seal, she uses her fur to keep warm. But in order to do the surgery, we have to shave it so we can keep it sterile prior to the to the brain surgery so we had to use some creative thinking to figure out how could we shave the least amount of fur possible while still making the surgery a success but letting her keep her coat so that when she woke up from anesthesia she could still keep herself warm so a lot of those techniques we Trey and I learned in veterinary school on dogs and cats we apply to our marine mammals it's just a little bit of creativity and a lot more training and um, and you make it work did you go to vet school knowing you wanted to work on marine animals or did you kind of get hooked on that along the way? I was always one of the uh, veterinarians that always uh, kind of focused towards the weird thing. So dogs and cats was like a little too normal for me. Uh, so I was always like, I wanted to be at the zoo doing the zebras or be at the aquarium doing the penguins or the whales. So, um, you know, in veterinary school, we get a really solid education on dogs and cats and horses and cows and those typical species. But then afterwards, we train uh, in internship and residency training specific to zoo and aquatic animals. And then we become board certified specialists in zoo and aquatic animal medicine. And then and then you can work at a zoo and aquarium and do all of these really cool things. Trey, what got you hooked on marine life and being a marine vet? So... It kind of all start kind of like Jen. Uh, it started when I was a kid. Luckily, my dad's a human physician. He's an ER doctor. 
And so I got to go to, to uh, some of the night shifts with him, and I got to see some cool stuff. You know, as a little 12-year-old boy, I got to see, like, a gunshot wound. But I always loved uh, reptiles and zoo animals. My motto was, like, if it can't kill me, I don't want to treat it. But uh, I was allergic to cats, which is funny enough. I'm allergic to cats, too. Yeah. <laughs> <That was funny. laughs> so, so that was kind of, you know, the, your normal dogs and cats were kind of out. Uh, but I came home to my mom, and I was like, you know, mom I want to be a zookeeper but I want to be a doctor what what do I do and she's like you know Trey you can be an animal doctor and you know my little 12 year old mind went boom and it was and from there on it was it was that and I've always enjoyed I love the creepy crawly stuff I love sharks and uh, just like Jen we kind of trudged on and made our dreams come true yeah, I think the love of animals starts young, and I was actually, as a young kid, inspired by going to SeaWorld, which is where Trey works, but um, and seeing those animals and uh, listening to the educators explain about their life history and and um, conservation efforts and all these things really inspired me, and I was like, that's what I want to do with my life. I want to also help these animals, so that's kind of where it all got started. I want to ask a little bit about the intersection, I guess, between... Uh, the veterinary world and the human medicine world obviously we're on the tail end of a pandemic and the origins of that are still a little bit unclear but a lot more people I think are paying attention to how diseases spread so has that sort of been something that you all have been talking about as in, in the field of veterinary science like you know what do we look out for what could some of the signs be like how do we sort of work to prevent the next pandemic or sort of get ahead of it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, infectious disease and spread of infectious disease is something that we're trained in, uh, especially working with wildlife and zoo animals. So um, so it's a huge focus of our training, and certainly the pandemic brought forth concerns and the potential of diseases spreading from wildlife to humans. So these are all things that we... we we and those of us in this field continue to study and focus on to learn for the future. And we're kind of on the front lines of that. You know, there's been an initiative with One Health uh, trying to bring all those disciplines together, including human medicine, veterinarians, uh, epidemiologists all together because essentially it's all the same thing, right? Uh, if you learn something from someone else, that can help you with your other field and that can kind of just, it all brings it onto like one big cauldron and helping us uh, solve it. There are animal pandemics too, right? I, I interviewed some folks about a deadly disease that's affecting rabbits not too long ago, rabbit hemorrhagic fever, I yeah. think. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, in the field of marine veterinary science, what's out there that you think kind of could be coming, or, or are there some sort of analogies to you know, what we've seen in the world of human pandemics in the last 15 months that have swept through the animal kingdom that we maybe aren't paying attention to and should be? That, that's, a, that's a great question, and that's an open-ended question because, you know, there is a lot. Um, and some of the animal pandemics that we do see, you know, are well-studied or things that we don't know are coming up. Uh, that helps us model kind of um, how it's going to spread, how it can affect humans. Uh, and it can affect humans be simply by, you know, it's affecting these animals, which affect their food source for this fish, which affects the food source for this fish, and then ultimately that fish comes to our, onto our plate. So it's all interconnected, and yeah, there's lots of pandemics that we've seen or observed throughout the years. Um, you know, one big one was uh, definitely brucella with that we see in dolphins, uh, and that's something that we were 
closely all you know once again it takes an army and all the institutions zoological institutions were looking for this especially you know animal washed up dead we were once necropsying it doing simple uh, all our sampling sending it out to other institutions that were better equipped for it so we're all once again collaborating to try to figure out and then we can then use those models uh, of, in, of spread and we can actually apply it to let's say our food sources and or is there a possible transmission to, to humans, right? Is there an interaction and with all these wet markets and things like that over in the east? That's a huge, huge uh, uh, vector or source for these, for these types of issues. What do you think the next couple of years looks like? I mean, what are you looking for in terms of, uh, I guess, advances in the field of study that you're working on or, or new animals you want to treat? That's a great question. So, I mean, really, we come across problems, new problems every day, and sometimes it's just fixing the problem of the day. We're really looking into new diagnostic techniques, into really kind of figuring out the anatomy of a lot of these species, because a lot of these species, we have, they have developed such unique anatomy that helps them survive out in the wild, and learning that helps us better treat them and also helps us better uh, recognize the environment around them, and then therefore we can better help save the whole population as well. So definitely better uh, advances in, in diagnostics and just kind of visualizing the animal. Um, and then that helps us with, you know, knowing the anatomy also helps us with surgical procedures or where things can go wrong. There's a lot of different things that are coming out. And once again, you know, once we solve one problem, another one, another five pop up. So it's always, uh, we're always trudging and we're always trying to uh, push the envelope. I think that um, for me personally, conservation, ocean conservation is a huge, a huge thing that we need to continue to work towards. Our oceans are not getting any better. You know, there's challenges out there for the wildlife and um, at Trey's facility as well as mine, you know, we do a lot of rescue, rehabilitation and release. So that's huge. And learning more about the oceans and the ecosystems and what challenges these animals are facing is going to be huge for um, for years to come to ensure we can provide for a safer ecosystem out there. Well, Dr. Jen Flower, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And uh, Dr. Trey Clark, thank you as well. Appreciate it. Thank you. Dr. Jen Flower is the Chief Clinical Veterinarian at Mystic Aquarium in Connecticut and Dr. Trey Clark is the Director of Animal Health and Welfare at SeaWorld Abu Dhabi and I spoke to him at the Veterinary Meeting and Expo in Orlando last week. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance for this week's show from our intern Brittany Caldwell. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts and you can find archived content on our website wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. You can follow me on Twitter Twitter at Matthew underscore Petty. Thanks for listening.